Thank you, Matt, and the rest of our worship team. It is so great to be led to the throne and for the view not to be obscured. So I'm thankful for Matt and these people leading us in worship on all three floors. Welcome to worship this morning. I want to be one more voice to say that to you. Whether you're watching at home remotely or someplace else, or here on the third floor, second floor, or on the first floor, we are glad that you're here, and we are convinced that it is no accident that you are here. That's because we believe in a God who is infinite and who is utter, but who is also intimate, who is with, both and at the same time. And so just the fact that you're here is delightful to our God, who wants to connect and who wants to communicate with each and every one of us. Now, my name's Eric, and I get to pastor down here. One of the things I get to do as a pastor is to walk side by side with different people as they go through their world, as they try to make sense of what's happening in the world in which they live, as they experience relationships, as they encounter global events, as they go through trials and temptations and toils and travails, how do they make sense of their world? And it's fascinating for me to help people sort of give a name to the lenses through which they see their world, to give a name perhaps, to give a little bit of definition to how people interpret their own reality. It's fascinating, believe it or not, most people actually have no idea or why they see and experience and interpret the world the way that they do. Often, their worldview is nothing more than a collection, a cobbled together bundle of experiences. Well, this is how I was brought up. This is how I was taught. This is what I expect. And therefore, anything that falls outside of that is wrong. Do you know anybody like that? <laughs> Your spouse does. There are some people who their whole worldview is nothing more than a cobbled together collection of fears and expectations. There are those people who see it my way, those people I call friends, those people who don't see it my way I call potential threats and enemies. Do you know anybody like that? Do you actually have any idea what your worldview is? Perhaps you should have the boldness, I should have the boldness to ask the people closest to us, how do you think I see, experience, and interpret the world? Those people closest to you, oh, they know, and they've been waiting their whole lives for you to ask them. One of the wonderful things about our Bible is that it's not just some cobbled together collection of stories that are sometimes interesting, often boring. No, our Bible reads us more than we read it, and it's telling us this is how you can live in the world here and now in the 21st century of East Texas. This is how practically you can experience, observe, and interpret your world. And one of the ways our Bible tells us and teaches us to experience, interpret, and observe our world is through the lenses of kingdoms. Now, we're in the 21st century in East Texas. We're Westerners. We don't much care for the idea of kingdoms. We revolted against the last one in the name of God, I might add. But a kingdom is where a sovereign ruler rules, and he exerts and imposes his or her will, and those residents or subjects of that kingdom fall into compliance with that kingdom, or they face consequences. A kingdom is where a sovereign ruler rules, imposes his or her will, and those who live within that kingdom either fall into compliance 
or they face consequences. Our Bible is wanting us to experience and interpret our world based on the notion that there are, in fact, two kingdoms. There are. And one of the things that you and I can do as we walk around our world, as we turn on the news media and we see this is happening, what is going on over there? Oh, this is two kingdoms. What is happening with her? What is happening with him? Oh, this is a two kingdoms issue. And then very quickly, you start to hear the crunch of the key in the lock, and it turns, and you begin to make sense of your world the way God makes sense of his world. All of this prepares us for what this passage today in Mark chapter 3 is going to teach us. What if we could actually begin to see the world differently, to see the world through God's eyes? Wouldn't that change the way we live? In fact, that is our instruction. It is the imperative. It is the invitation. We must, which prepares us for our big idea. It's going to come out of Mark chapter 3. It goes like this. The king has come. His kingdom is here. The king has come. His kingdom is here. Now, we're in the gospel of Mark where we get to pretty much just stare at Jesus for this whole spring semester. We just look at Jesus, and the reason for that is very fundamental. It is very foundational. It is because the more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. The more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. We don't do exercises to try to grow our faith. Well, I have all these different highlighters, and I have just the right amount of sunlight, so when I Instagram my Bible, people think I'm super spiritual. No, they don't. That's a technique that might be helpful, but it's probably not. No, the way to grow our faith is to stare and to examine the object of our faith. And so church is not a place where we all come together to try to be better and impress one another with how we're doing. Did you check this out? Four less sins this week. Liar! No, no, that's not what we do. We come to gather together and go, tell me about what you saw in Jesus this week. Where did you hear Aslan the lion roar? Oh, you didn't. Well, he was. He was. Tell me about where you saw the spirit whisper to your children. Tell me where you saw him move in a hospital room. Did you, did you hear him in hospice? That's what we come to do, to examine the object of our faith so that our faith grows and grows and grows. Now, we are in the third chapter of Mark, and I want to remind us of a little bit of context because hopefully you've slept at least a little since last Sunday. Remember that the Gospel of Mark is written by Mark, but probably with the dictation of the Apostle Peter. And, and you get the idea that Mark is writing this down. He goes, and then what happened? And then what happened? And then what happened? Peter goes, slow down, little fella. I'll get there. Give me a, just write this down. Mark is writing from Rome in Italy, in the heart of the Roman Empire, to Romans who were very pragmatic, very practical. The Gospel of Matthew is written to Jewish people to say that Jesus is the rightful king. The Gospel of Luke is written to Gentiles to say that Jesus is the perfect man. He is the God-man. The Gospel of John is written to say that Jesus is God. He is divine. But Mark is written to say Jesus is the suffering servant. He is the one that makes life work. Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I know you've heard of Caesar and emperors, and they all promise to make life work. They can't, but I'm going to introduce you to the one that can. So at long last, the king has come. His kingdom is here. Mark chapter 3, we're going to begin reading in verse 7. Now Matt took us through this first paragraph last week, but I want to on-ramp us very quickly. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Mark writes this, Jesus withdrew from his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee to Judea. Now, 
I need a favor. We're sitting in East Texas in 2022. I'm in the third floor of the most nondescript, boring, beige office building in the history of ecclesiology. And so I need you to come with me for a moment. You got to come. You got to come. You got to come. We've got to be in the land. I, I need you on site. I need you in property. I need you in the northern part of the nation of Israel. I need you 100 miles north of Jerusalem in the Galilee. There's this freshwater lake called the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't a sea. It was a large lake. And they're on the northern rim. It's the land of the Gentiles, but it's still in Israel. So there's this hodgepodge, this mix, this mulligan stew of peopleage. And Jesus has very rapidly begun to be, become sort of a, of a pop sensation. He's doing things that no one's ever seen done on a whim. And he doesn't have to try hard. He doesn't have to hocus pocus or hold his arms just so. He just does it. He just says it. Sometimes he doesn't say anything. It just happens. And so he's got this following, and it's wearing him out. Listen to what it says here, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee to Judah and Judea and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, that's to the east of the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon, these are Gentiles and Jews alike. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Now we hear that and we go, well, yeah, it's kind of a neat scene, and I saw this on a mosaic in my church growing up as a little kid. No, 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 no. I've never been to India or Bangladesh, but some of you have, and some of you have friends and family members that have. The closest thing I can describe this verse is when I've heard people talk about going into India or Bangladesh and they step off of those overcrowded trains as they leave the urban centers and they go out into the rural areas where there's just misery. There's people with mangled, deformed limbs and diseases and infirmities and filth and squalor and pain and hopelessness. This is what Jesus steps into. It's not a bunch of Caucasians in bathrobes going, please, huh? Help. No, no, it was utter misery, despondency, and hopelessness. And Jesus is walking around, and it's like they're wringing him out like a washcloth. And he's going, I got, I got nothing left. It's that setting. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, not just inconvenience him and he needs to pop a tic-tac or three. No, they're going to smother him. He can't breathe. They're so thick with their misery and hopelessness. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. That's icky. I mean, we're Westerners. We like our space. Thank you very much. We kind of have this Clint Eastwood Christianity where I'll be on my horse over there. You get on your 400 acres and go over there and we'll praise Jesus. No, people with all kinds of diseases were just up in his business. And he was moved. He had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. <laughs> Don't be on the third floor or the second floor or the first floor. Don't be just in your home watching this. Be in Palestine. All this crush of humanity, and every now and then a voice shrieks out. We heard Matt speak demon last week. He's fluent in demon, I should tell you. We heard this, this shrieking, you are the son of God. Now, they're not worshipers. They're going, well, I'll be. I'm going to take a knee and say the ABCs of conversion. That's not what they're doing. 
Now we're seeing that all this oppression, misery, oh, it's also a darkness. Oh, we get the flickers here that there's actually a second kingdom, and it is dark. It is not the product of an invading empire, Rome. It's not even a corrupt government. It's not just a bad economy. It's not even the lack of good, effective education. There is a darkness that binds, holds, and oppresses people. And Jesus says, you shut your mouth. Why? Because they were speaking lies. They weren't. They're trying to force his hand. Jesus' hand will not be forced. He will never be moved beyond his own timeline. He's not going to be rushed, but they will certainly be hushed. He is following the Father's plan. Now, it's instructive and it's important for us to remember just a quick inline principle because Jesus encounters a lot of these people and he doesn't heal or resolve every single one of them because he's got a bigger mission, a larger vision. So the point goes like this. There are worse things than suffering and death and there are better things than human happiness and flourishing. I think our world forgets that because our world is looking at the world through the vision of there's only one kingdom and we're going to make it better. We are woefully unqualified for the job. There are things that are way worse than suffering and death, as bad as they are. And there are things that are way better than human happiness and flourishing. Those are not our goals because those were not Jesus' goals. He had something way bigger in mind. He strictly ordered them, the unclean spirits, not to make him known. Moving on, verse 13. And he went up on the mountains and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now, we're Westerners again. You, you got to be up in Palestine. You can't be thinking of East Texas. It gets hot in the summers, and all of us Texans, us lowlanders, we scat to the mountains in the summer because it's hot, and we like retreats. That's not what's going on. In Palestine, the mountains were deadly, savage places. They were dangerous. They were not safe. That's where the bandits all hung out. That's where the insurrectionists, the rebels, the seditionists, they all went up into the hills to be left alone so that they could plot their revolutions. Jesus has to escape these hordes of hopelessness, people. And he takes a few people up into the mountains. Make no mistake, this king has come, and he is plotting reform of all of the status quo. There will be a collision of kingdoms as this one goes up into the hills to draw to himself those whom he will call. Listen to what happens here. This is really interesting. He called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now, very quickly, we got to talk briefly about calling. The Greek word kaleo is, to, is not just to invite. It's more like a royal summons. When the Queen of England says, show up at 2, you don't go, no, I've got racquetball. No, no, you show up at 1.30. It's a summons that you don't argue with because she's a sovereign in her realm. Now, there are two kinds of calling in your Bible. There is the general call that goes out into all the world. Psalm 19 talks about the rocks and the trees and the hills. They all, their line goes forth. Creation is issuing forth an invitation to worship. Who will respond in the human world? General call. All humanity hears it and receives it. We are without excuse, Romans 1 says. And then there is what we call the special call. The efficacious call. When the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords says, come. You don't say, I got a thing. I did really, I, I got a roast in the oven. You, no, no, no. You, you, you come. All those who are special called 
are justified, are sanctified, are glorified. Every single one. This is Paul's golden chain of salvation in Romans chapter 8. And so Jesus calls these guys. Which call is this? Well, we have to read the text to find out. Initially, he's going to call these 12 Jewish people. All 12 of them are Jews. All 11 of them are from the Galilee, except for one. This one guy named Judas Iscariot. He's from Kiriot. A different little region, not actually in the Galilee. But they're all 12. And any Jewish ear sitting in Rome would hear this and go, 12, 12, that's the biblical number of administration. This is how God gets things done. This is how he organizes, delegates, and distributes. There were 12 tribes of Israel so that this nation of priests called up onto a mountain in Exodus 19 would be the administered, organized, distributed, and sent distributors of the light and the truth of Yahweh. How'd they do? Welcome to Babylon, boys. Y'all get comfy. But this God king calls some people up on a mountain, just like Exodus 19, and he begins to name them. Why? What's going on? This is Genesis 2 language. This is the last Adam naming things in the trees because he has mastery. He has sovereignty. The rightful king has come. And he will collide with the old kingdom of darkness. So he names these guys. Listen to their names. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. Sidebar, that little expression may or may not be in the original manuscripts. Doesn't matter. It's still true. He also named them apostles. So that, and we get this really interesting threefold set of purpose statements. Why does Jesus call people? Why did he call these 12? They still apply to us today. Three things we're going to see. Why did he do this? That's the wrong page. Here we go. Yeah so that they might be with him. Jesus calls people to make them nice. No, not what it says. Jesus calls people so that they won't speed in school zones. Not what it says. Jesus calls disciples so that they will be with him. Not learning about him. Not hearing cool trivia about him. Did you know Jesus could bench press Pluto? No, I, 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 didn't, I, didn't, I don't care. Jesus calls disciples so that they will be with him. That's astonishing, you guys, please. There's no other religion ever, ever, ever devised that that's the intent of the sovereign deity. Calls them so that they will be with him. But wait, it gets better. And they might send them out to preach. Not only do I want you to be with me, I want you to be with me so much that I'm going to send you out and all you're going to do is, you guys, Jesus. I mean, whoa! You mean the, the cool rabbi teacher? No, I mean the king of kings and lord of lords. The king has come and his kingdom is here. The king has come and his kingdom is here. What do you mean? Caesar is, is lord. No, 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 he's not. He's going to die. Let me tell you about Jesus. That's purpose too, that you would be with Jesus, that you would preach, you would proclaim, you would talk about Jesus. But wait, there's more. Verse 15, the third, and to have authority to cast out demons. <laughs> yeah, that's a mark of a disciple? Well, that's a very specific thing for a very specific time. But it's actually broader than that. It is to be about the rightful king's campaign of sabotage. To proclaim that the king has come and his kingdom is here and it is colliding against the kingdom of darkness in any way. We are to be the righteous bringers, not the moral behavior modifiers. Holy, holy, 
Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Do you know what that means? It doesn't mean pure, 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 moral, 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 good, good, good. It means enrightifying, enrightifying, enrightifying is the Lord God Almighty. And Christians who have been with Jesus, who have been sent out to proclaim, are a part of the enrightifying of a broken, dark world that is held in captivity. Don't you dare for a nanosecond tell me that how we live in this world doesn't matter. You're at odds with Jesus. Because <laughs> the king has come, and his kingdom is here. He calls these guys. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. See, just like Adam in the garden, he says, I'm going to call you Badger, because you're a feisty little fella. I'm going to call you Steve. No, Steve's taken. We're going to call you Zebra. And on and on, he names all of them, because the one who names has authority. This last Adam is going to name these guys. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. These guys, well, I like these guys. These guys said it, and then they thought it. <laughs> I like that kind of personality. I am that kind of personality. You remember, James and John are walking through Samaria. The Samaritan village doesn't welcome them, and James and John go, hey, Jesus, how about we call down a little brimstone on these boys? And Jesus says something like, you ninnies. I love these people. No. These are the sons of thunder. He names them. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew. More than likely Bartholomew is another name for Nathaniel, whom Jesus saw under the fig tree. And Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. Probably a lot of people think that means they were, he was super nationalistic. He was uh, take a lot of pride in Israel and it's rise again, maybe, more than likely, the term means he was zealous for God's honor. That's a good thing. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him? Whoa, you fail. You fail, Mark. That's not how you end. You don't spoil the punchline right here in chapter 3. But here we are, chapter 3, verse 19, and that's just going to hang out there for a very long time. He's going to go ahead and tell us that Judas is going to betray. Now, that's... A surprise, and it's going to just sort of waft out there for the rest of this gospel account. Jesus, or sorry, this Judas, who would betray him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Quick sidebar here. The king has come. His kingdom is here. But miracles don't make us believe. Maybe you've had the thought. Maybe you've had the experience. If I could just see a miracle, then I would believe. Or if my family members or my friends, if they could just see a miracle, then they would believe. It's never happened in human history. There's no record ever in Scripture, Old Testament or New Testament, of someone simply observing a sign or a wonder and then going, oh, I'm, I, I'm in. I'm following Messiah. Lock, stock, and barrel for the rest of my life. It's never happened. You know what they do? They go, that's pretty cool. Hey, tomorrow, can I get some pizza? That's pretty cool. Hey, tomorrow, can you heal my, my nephew? Because he, he cries a lot, and it's kind of starting to bug me. They, they, they become fans, you see, not followers. Miracles don't make us believe, so that needs to not be our focus. Nobody did signs and wonders like Jesus. But just as in the Old Testament and in the New, signs and wonders were only ever, always, to vindicate and authenticate the word that was spoken. And when there was no word being spoken, there was not a miracle being done or a sign or a wonder being performed. So miracles don't make us believe. Verse 20, then he went home, probably back into Capernaum, probably into the home of 
Peter or Peter's mother-in-law, perhaps both, we don't know for sure. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. They're so pressed in. These people hear that Jesus is back in town. Capernaum is maybe 1,500 people. And you have to understand, all right, wait, did you come back to Tyler? Stop it. Go back to Palestine. You got to be up in Capernaum on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum, 1,500 people. It's only maybe 50 acres or so. It's small. But Capernaum was the learning center of the north. All of the really lofty scribes and Pharisees were down in Jerusalem, but Capernaum was sort of like the epicenter of the scribes, the rabbis, the, the really smart dudes who were trying to hold the line in the land of the Gentiles up in the Galilee. And yet Jesus comes back from whatever mountain he was up on. He goes into a house, and they just crush in on him. It's really sort of fascinating. And when his family heard it, this word family is a little bit of a misnomer. This is sort of like extended kinfolk, you know, those folks that you see when somebody distant dies. It's not like your immediate family, not yet. They'll come later. His family, his kinfolk, his distant relatives, they heard it. They went out to seize him, for they were saying, now you can come back to East Texas. He's out his mind. He's outside himself. He's crazy. Now, what's really interesting is in Mark's gospel, you're going to see now a dividing line between these two kingdoms. You're going to see those who were inside with Jesus and those who were outside, who for whatever reason refused to come in. Now, it's hard for us to probably understand because now I need you to go back to Palestine. Back to Palestine. Isaiah makes it very clear that Jesus looked like any other Palestinian person. Probably about 5'6", 138 pounds, dark skin, curly hair. He didn't float around like some Berkeley hippie with blonde hair and blue eyes and a narrow nose. Oh, I could have probably followed that. But if my big brother would have said, I'm Messiah, I'd have kicked him. And that's what they're thinking. Wait, what are you doing? And yet, they had also seen all of his signs and wonders. They weren't arguing with that. They were just going, we got to do something. He's going to get himself killed. <laughs> He's going to cause inconvenience for us. People are going to talk weird about us. Yeah, well, you know what? They were anyway. <laughs> You're from Nazareth. You smell funny. They went out to get him. They didn't go inside the house to hear him. They sent someone in. They were outside. Those who are inside are with Jesus. Well, he continues on. Very strangely, in Mark 3, beginning in verse 22 and following, we have this, what we call a Markin sandwich. I don't recommend a Markin sandwich for lunch. A Markin sandwich, where we have this talk of Jesus' family in verses 20 and 21, and then there's this interlude, there's a pause, and we get this very meaningful, massive section, and then he's going to pick up and talk about Jesus' family again. It's very brilliant the way Mark and Peter, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the way they construct this. Now, here's the centrality of our text at long last, beginning in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, now, I hope you're still in Palestine. I need you to be up in the north, north on the edge in the rim of the Sea of Galilee. Jerusalem is a hundred or so, 105 miles to the south, and it's up in elevation. It's 3,500 feet in elevation. And when you go down to Capernaum. You're going north, but you're going down, both in elevation and also in loftiness. Because you are a scribe. A lot of times that gets translated as lawyers. That's not the best translation. It'd be more like legislators. They are the ones who continue to find their lists and make them longer. There's Torah, 
And then there's all the other traditions that these guys just keep adding to. You can only stir counterclockwise three times. You have to hold up one foot and light your sparkler and do this on all that kind of stuff. And so they kept adding and adding and adding. And they begin to hear what's happening up at Capernaum. And the smart guys in Capernaum apparently aren't smart enough to handle this little upstart, this irritant. And so the legislators are going to go down from Jerusalem. It's a four-day walk. Now, they're beginning to be threatened. For four days and a hundred miles, they're, of course, talking to one another. Hey, I heard he cast out some unclean spirit in the synagogue. Well, that was pretty interesting. I wonder how he did that. Hey, I heard he, he had some guy stretch out his withered hand, and it was whole. That's pretty crazy. I heard there was a paralytic that was lowered down into his house, and he healed him, and he said he forgave his sins. He claimed to be the Daniel chapter 7 son of man. We can't have this go on. And for four days and a hundred miles, they devised this ruse which after 100 miles and four days wasn't very bright. Here they go. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. Now, Beelzebul, there's a little bit of stuff going on here. Beelzebul was the name of the ancient Canaanite god that means Lord of the Heights. It would really be Baal Zebul the Lord of the heights. But the Hebrews, in an act of derision against those false gods, changed it to Baal Zebub. It sounds a little French, but it isn't. Baal Zebub meant the Lord of the flies. Yes, there's a book named that. There's also a reference to Baal Zebub in that wonderful anthem by Freddie Mercury and the band Queen. Baal Zebub has the devil set aside for me. Shall I stop? I will. The bottom line is whatever you prefer, Belzebul or Belzebub, it had become a synonym for Satan the prince of the power of the air, what Paul will call in 2 Corinthians the God of this age, the king of the other kingdom. Now we're beginning to see what's happening. There is another kingdom already in place. Why do we say that? Well, listen to what they say. They accuse him of being possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them and he said to them in parables. Now I got to tell you, I'm kind of amazed. These guys are threatened. Their, their status and their control, John eleven forty eight 48 tells us, their status and their control is threatened. Incidentally, those are the two great enemies of the faith. Your perceived status and control. For that, people will walk 400 miles, or sorry, 100 miles in four days to try to preserve their status and their control. And they say, this, this, this guy has to be stopped. We've got to deflect his influence. We've got to dull his notoriety. I know, I know, I know. He's, he's possessed by demons. And Jesus goes, boys, hop in the truck. Come on, get over here, get over here. Which is amazing to me because when I'm falsely accused, my first instinct is to make a parking lot out of that person and all that that person owns. But the problem is that person's usually at least somewhat correct. Not Jesus. Let me explain to you. And Jesus does something fascinating. Jesus responds with apologetics, with logic and reason. Listen to what he says. If a kingdom, he spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? And they go, oh, you got us there. Huh. We hadn't thought about that one. You had four days, Jesus says, 100 miles. How can he cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against that kingdom, the kingdom cannot stand. Oh, there it is. Jesus is telling us there is a kingdom, and it's already in place, and it's dark. But I am the king, and my kingdom is here. Now we have a collision of kingdoms. And yes, Abraham Lincoln used this in his presidential bid to be our 16th president. 
But Jesus means something way, 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 way deeper. He's not just talking about the potential for civil war. He's saying there's a collision of two kingdoms, one that exists and one that has come. And if Satan has risen up against him and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house. Ah, now at long last. Mark chapter 3, verse 27 is the central theme of this entire chapter. It comes here in Mark chapter 3 and verse 27. Jesus masterfully in one little verse is going to refer to pretty much everything that's happened in the first two and a half chapters of the book of Mark. Here he goes again, verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus says, listen, there is a strong man, the current king of this age. Adam pitched him the keys in Genesis chapter 3. He abrogated and the prince of this world took over and his kingdom exists and it's dark. But I've bound that dude. Not utterly and infinitely, oh, not quite just yet, but he's referring to his temptation in the wilderness. He threw everything he had at me and he's strong. And for 40 days, I didn't take nourishment. I didn't take community. For 40 days, he came at me. You know what he learned? I'm stronger. Oh, oh, wait. You think I'm doing this in the power of Satan? Let me be clear. I bound him by going hungry in the wilderness. I showed that I have more strength. The guy in the synagogue, Satan was bound. And I said, enough, out. I'm the stronger man. I'm the stronger man. Oh, the, the healings, the casting out, all that stuff. <laughs> the king has come and his kingdom is here. That's what I'm doing. You think I'm possessed by the devil? No, no. I am dispossessing him of his possessions. I'm strong enough to take his stuff. And they go, but, 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 that, that, that would mean that you. That's right. That's who I am. I'm the stronger man and I can take his stuff. See also, all these people behind me, Limp Larry, Crazy Cal, they're all gross and disgusting, but I'm strong enough to bind their enemy and to release them, and that's what I've come to do, and they are silent. The first time they're speaking in wisdom, meaning not at all. It's a pretty significant break between verse 27 and 28. And so Jesus says something really, really fascinating and yet it's been ripped out of context and misused for a very long time he says truly i say to you all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter but whoever blasphemes against the holy spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin for they were saying he has an unclean spirit this has been ripped out of context to threaten people, to scare them, to try to believe or behave, and it never works. And I could spend weeks on this alone. Let me just quickly say, what Jesus is describing here comes in a context. It is in reference to everything he's just described. What is this sin that is eternal and unforgivable? Quite frankly, we get this from Hebrews and what Jesus has just said, it is the sin of disbelief. It is quite simply the sin of disbelief, failing to believe the gospel, the good news of the good work that God has done in Christ as illumined by the Holy Spirit. It is attributing that good work to nonsense, calling it opposed to human good. It is disbelief, and that disbelief, should it persist forever, is eternal and therefore unforgivable. 
If you're sitting there wondering if you've ever blasphemed the Holy Spirit, because <laughs> all of us do, if there was ever a time that you were not a believer, the answer is yes. And that's not pastorally comforting. But we have to understand what Jesus is going to say through the rest of this gospel. The answer is yes, until you believed the gospel and received forgiveness. And at that nanosecond, all sin acknowledged as sin is forgiven, always and forever, and it never recurs. Jesus is talking about the recurrence of disbelief. Let me put it this way. If you're concerned about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, you haven't. If you're worried about that at all, that means you haven't. Because there would be no other concern. There are people who go on and they make, there's this thing on the interwebs now, I'm told, called TikTok. <laughs> you heard of it? Sounds very boring to me. But they, people go on and they say, I hereby blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Ha ha, nothing happened. And I go, it's not it. It's cute. Actually, it's very boring. That's not it. Here's the best summary quote I can give you for what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. It goes like this. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is a conscious clear and consistent repudiation of the work of God in Christ by the Holy Spirit by those who should know better. Oh, I hear your cute little gospel stories. No, I will not have that man as my king. Ugh. And that will continue as such, unforgiven, until the nanosecond you say, that is sin. And Jesus says, done, clear, welcome, you're in. The king has come his kingdom is here. Well, amazing. We pick right back up verse 31 very quickly. We have the end of this bookend of this family narrative. And his mother and his brothers came. Wait, what? After all that heaviness, why does Mark go back to the family? Ah, because Mark and Peter understand that what Jesus just said was very heavy. And so we need some comfort. We need some encouragement. We need some exhortation here. His mother, yes, that's Mary, and his brothers. That's his biological brothers now. They came and standing outside... They said to him and called him. They're outside. They don't go in the house. And yet again, we see this image portrayed. Those who are inside with Jesus, with him, they are disciples. Those who are outside going, hey, 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 hey. Enough of that already. They're on the outside. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? <laughs> don't miss this. You've got to be back in Palestine. Get out of Tyler. You've got to go back up to Capernaum on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. There's just all this throng of humanity. Smell Bangladesh. This is who's gathered around. And Jesus looks around and goes, who's my brother? Who's my mother? <laughs> Can you see his face? You have to see his face. Look at his face. Look at it. And he goes, these are my brothers and sisters. This is my mother. Can you just see the glow in his grin? Now, we have a tendency to get smacked by the, oh, that's disrespecting his parents. That's not what he's doing. He's looking at the lost and the least, the hopeless and the helpless and the hapless, and he goes, I love y'all. You don't understand. I love you. That's my point. Jesus loves his family. Jesus loves his family, sitting there in the midst of them, he came right into the vulgar. And he goes, I love you. Now, what are you? Well, you're relatively moral and decent most of the time, unless no one else is home. Do you see his face? I love you. Come inside. Be with me. 
be with me. See my face. Look at me. I'm crazy about you. See, Jesus is not interested in fans. I've heard this before. Perhaps many of us have grown up our whole lives being fans of Jesus. Oh, look at that party trick he did. Look at that. He's going to come back one day. Look at that. When I die, he'll take me to heaven. No, no, no. Those are fans. The unthinkable happened this week. Adele. Some of you know who Adele is. Every time our elders gather, we say hello from the other side. That's how we pray. I'm kidding. Not really. Adele. Nobody's had a bigger year than Adele. She's been crushing it. She sold quadrillions of records. She's crushing it. Except this week. Uh-oh. She canceled her big show in Vegas. Oh, that's right. With not much good explanation. Oh, first it was COVID. Then oh, it was all the carpenters weren't ready. Then I'm kind of just fussy and cranky. And people were like, I just spent $40,000 to fly in from Africa or from China or from Ireland. I spent forty k Where my money? And suddenly all these people who were fans of Adele, the, the, the sinless Adele, look how wonderful. She, oh, they're saying things about Adele they shouldn't say about war criminals. She got canceled because fans will turn on someone in a moment if they don't get what they want or expect. Jesus is not interested in fans. Jesus is not threatened by fiends, these evil spirits who proclaim things. Shush up, you new king in town. He is here, and his kingdom is here. He's not trapped by his foes, clever attempts to out-argue Jesus. That's always a bad idea considering that Jesus is the sum of all wisdom and knowledge. He is the ever eternally existing son of God. You can't trap him. He's not threatened by foes. Jesus is here to add to his family, his friends and his followers. His family are all these people gathered around, Jew and Gentile alike, those that are inside. Listen to what he says to wrap this section up. Looking about them, he said, who are around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Does that mean they should never sin again? No. They are out, having been with Jesus, proclaiming Jesus. As C.S. Lewis said, the rightful king has landed and we are to be about his, his program of sabotage. Those are my brothers and my sisters and I love them. They are in Christ. And so they are the very will of God. The king has come. His kingdom is here. This is very good news. One concluding summary point. It goes like this. Satan is strong, but Jesus is stronger. If you get nothing else from this very long morning, you have to be able to walk around in your world and say that. There's two kingdoms. Satan is strong, but Jesus is stronger. And you have to be able to identify the two primary chains that Satan binds people. He's relentless. He doesn't ever quit. He doesn't get sleepy. He doesn't care about what's on TV. He just never stops. He comes at you. On the one hand, he will tempt you with your entitlement, trying to get you to believe that you deserve more. You're entitled to better. You should grasp and get. But in the same breath, on the other ear, he'll tell you that you are a slug, that you don't deserve anything, that God's disappointed with you, and he accuses you day and night so that you will do anything it takes to try to alleviate that pain and that pressure. Temptation, accusation. Temptation, accusation. All day long. And you can't bear up. You're waterboarded by the enemy all the time, unless you remember there are two kingdoms. Satan is strong, but Jesus is stronger. Let me put it this way. Our sin is strong, but his grace is stronger. 
Our sin is no match for his grace. See also the temptation in the wilderness. Defeated it. See also withered hands and demon-possessed people. Got it. He is the stronger man who binds the strong man. There's nothing you can bring to him that he goes, okay, didn't see that coming. You voted for who? Nope, you're out. No, no, no. Uh, you said a dumb thing about God one time when you were mad or confused or upset. Okay, confess it as sin, and he became it. He who knew no sin became that sin so that you and I could be the enrichifying program of Christ in this world. The king has come. His kingdom is here. And yet, let me end with this. And yet, are you looking at Jesus? Are you looking at Jesus? What do you see when you're looking at Jesus? Remember way back up in verse 19, this Judas. Mark goes ahead and tells us who betrayed him. Why would he do that? To set us up, to ask us tacitly, how will we respond? Judas represents the collisions of the kingdoms. See, it wasn't long before Judas began to look at Jesus and he started to realize, Jesus is not going to get it done for me. He's not going to accomplish my agenda. So you know what Judas sees? As the collision of these kingdoms occur... will not have this king. <laughs> will not have this king. And the rest of Judas's life is one hammer stroke after another, trying to get Jesus to do what Judas wants. And he will not have it. At the end of his life, Judas has hammered himself into destruction. But I invite you, the king has come. His kingdom is here. Look at him. Hammer no more. Hammer no more. To receive Christ as the one king, the one true king, is to step out of death and darkness and into life and light in the here and now. It doesn't mean that life will be easy. In fact, it'll probably get harder. But it'll work. It'll work. It'll have meaning and direction and purpose and love and fulfillment and joy and even peace right until you draw your last breath in this polluted atmosphere and then you see him. However, to keep that other king, to continue in your old system of always trying to achieve or ascend is to fall farther and farther from the offer of grace until finally we're just handed over to ourselves. Romans 1, so that we can't even hear the offer anymore and then like Judas, we're just hammering the nails all through life. And I know people like this, and I love them. And that would remove the hammer from them. And so we spend time with Jesus. We proclaim his excellencies, and we are part of his campaign of light, of sabotage against the enemies of darkness. Hear and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. To receive Christ as the one king, the true king, is to see that this Jesus goes to the cross of his own volition for us and in our place. And Isaiah 53 tells us that it's actually the Father who delights in crushing his Son and our big brother, that's Hebrews 2, in place for what we have done and what we're like. What a king. And so I remind you, the more we examine the object of our faith, 
the more our faith grows. I'm not inviting you, young or old, male or female, I'm not inviting you to try harder to be better. I'm inviting you to look at Jesus. I'm inviting you to really consider Jesus and to trust that he is who the Bible says he is. What if it's true? Not some idea or notion that you might have heard about Jesus. What if it's true this king who cares, this champion who has died, this big brother who sings songs over us as we speak? What if it's all true? I invite you to believe. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer, I invite you to believe. I invite you to ask God to do for you what he has done for us. What is it that is preventing you from being persuaded? I'm not asking you to make a decision. I'm asking, are you persuaded? Are you not persuaded? What else can I say? What else can I do? I'll read the whole thing from the table of contents to the maps. I'll do it. Are you not persuaded? Such that the only plausible, logical response is to bend the knee to this king who has come and his kingdom that is here. I invite you to repent, to rethink your thinking. And God will use every means possible to soften your heart and lead you to saving faith so that you are persuaded. Ask God if it's true that he came to save you. The answer is yes. For the rest of us, if you're here this morning and you've been a believer for a long time, I remind you, your king has come. Your kingdom is here. You are his family. He's got all his sisters and me. They should put a song in there somewhere. Live like that's true. And so may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Amen.